0: Hello, Northeast Christian Church, and welcome to our online services. Thank you for joining us today. If you miss any part of today's service and you wanna catch it again, you can do so by checking us out on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or Spotify. We also encourage you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to stay up to date on everything we have going on here at the church. God bless and enjoy the rest of the service.
1: Good morning, everyone. What I'd like to do is jump back into our series on Ecclesiastes, the meaningless book, meaningless, meaningless, the, the gospel for pessimists. And uh, if you are a, a, a Debbie Downer or a, uh, you know, every-the-glass-is-half-empty kind of a person, this is your book, I'm telling you. Like, you could read it and be like, see, I know! HE'S SO, THIS IS WISDOM, LOOK AT THIS, THIS IS RIGHT. NOTHING HAPPENS, NOTHING GOES GOOD. AND ALL OF THESE KIND OF CYCLES HAPPEN. AND SO WHAT I WANT TO DO IS uh, FRAME FOR YOU THIS MORNING uh, A LITTLE BIT MORE OF THIS, BECAUSE THE NEXT FEW WEEKS UP UNTIL MISSIONS MONTH, WE'LL BE be CUTTING UP SPECIFIC PARTS OF IT. PASTOR DYLAN GAVE INTRO PART ONE, I WANT TO GIVE YOU BIG PICTURE for this book. So if you'd pray that God would help me to do that, is in a very brief time, in a very broad and meaningful way, join me in prayer. Father, in the name of Jesus, we just, we need you. Church and your word without the Spirit of God, without the presence of God, without the conviction of God, without the encouragement and inspiration of the Holy Spirit is just another lecture. We don't want a lecture, we want life. Lord, we want eternal life. That's what your word is. It's eternal life. It's truth. Lord, whether we know you little or long, I pray that you would speak deep into our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. I'M GOING TO STAY ON THIS SLIDE FOR A SECOND. LET ME, let me JUST TELL YOU A COUPLE OF THINGS ABOUT THE BOOK. And SOME OF THEM ARE re, A LITTLE BIT OF WHAT YOU REITERATED, BUT NOT ALL. THE BOOK IN HEBREW IS ACTUALLY CALLED KOHELETH. KOHELETH MEANS uh, A TEACHER, ANYBODY THAT GATHERS PEOPLE AROUND THEM. AND IN FACT, THE GREEK WORD FOR IT IS WHERE WE GET THE WORD ECCLESIASTES, Ecclesiastes FROM is where you get the word for church ecclesia ecclesiastical leaders and it's it's really in fact in in theology ecclesiology is the theology of the church why are we here why do we do what we do what would why do we observe communion and water baptism why do we meet together as a group why do we meet once a week why do we celebrate special things once a year and all of that is wrapped up in there but in the in the end the book is simply about a teaching and a teacher, and, and it says a few things about him. It says this, and look, if you if you open up your Bibles, your phones, or you look at your notes, whichever you want, in Ecclesiastes one one, it says this: the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, right there, I could say we know who the who the author of the book is, but we really don't. Who is who is the teacher? Who's we're really not sure. You see. IT SAYS THAT HE'S THE SON OF DAVID IN JERUSALEM, BUT THAT COULD BE A SYMBOLIC SON OF DAVID IN JERUSALEM. Uh, THERE ARE REALLY A BUNCH OF THEORIES ON WHO THE WRITER IS. THE BIGGEST ONE IS SOLOMON, AND THERE'S A LOT OF DETAILED STUFF BECAUSE I DON'T WANT TO RE-TREAD THE GROUND THAT PASTOR DYLAN DID, BUT THERE'S STUFF ABOUT HOW THE JEWISH PEOPLE WRITE WHEN THEY WRITE ABOUT IT, AND, and uh, THEY SAY THIS IS DEFINITELY SOLOMON and uh one of the things that the jewish people do because deuteronomy 4 4 says do not add to my word do not take away from it you know and so you ever hear somebody they're preaching and all of a sudden they're preaching something kind of crazy and you're like whoa god says don't add to your word and then you ever hear somebody where they're like uh you know what god brings people together in love but then they leave off a whole bunch of stuff and you're like yo don't take away from what God says. The Lord says this, 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 and this. So what, what, what we're supposed to have is the full counsel of God. And so if I start adding to God's word, I'm, how can I explain what he's trying to say to you? And so the Jewish people believe that God's word in the original Hebrew is what makes it sacred. So they began this thing because they're, they're trilingual. They speak Greek, they speak Hebrew, they speak um, aramaic at this time and so what they do is, is they create these things called targums where they rewrite scripture and they add a bunch of things to tell you what they think that the passage is saying and when they do this they feel that they're not violating god's word and so listen to this one i'm going to read this to you this one rewriting of ecclesiastes 1 it says the words or uh, 1 1 it says the words of prophecy which Kohelet, the teacher, that is Solomon, the son of David, king who was in Jerusalem prophesied. When, king, uh, when Solomon, king of Israel, saw that the Holy Spirit, that the kingdom of Rehoboam should be divided by Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and that the temple would be destroyed and the people in the household of Israel would go into exile, he said to himself, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless that my father David and I have done. Now, notice, we just read the verse, and it doesn't say any of that. But to the Jews that wrote this around the time of Jesus, they were so convinced that, that this was Solomon that they decided that they would add to it. So one, some believe Solomon's the teacher. Other people think it might be a king in Jerusalem because the books of Kings and Chronicles always say that um, he was like his father David and would explain the king being after the heart of David, and David, he was, he was, his, David was his father, which made him his son. But one thing's for sure that we see in this, and this is the point I want you to catch, is that while there, we're gonna look at the teachings of a teacher, there's some other person that's in here, and you see it very, very clearly if you read verses chapter one, one through 11, and the last chapter, chapter 12, where this individual is trying to take you on a journey through the teacher and his teachings to look at your life, to examine the dash between the date of your birth and death, to examine and see where you fall on significance and meaning. Are we living for things that Jesus never died for? Are we valuing things that really are going to be dust and meaningless? And so this person jumps in at the beginning and the end. And so what this is really is there's two voices, somebody that thought enough value of this writer that they would bring this. And in fact, this was a part of the Bible long before the time of Jesus. And so it's already in scripture. The Jewish people are recognizing it. Sometimes they have different debates on who wrote it, but they definitely see somebody that's like, hey, let's look at the teacher. And there's this, this kind of tension within the book The tension is is a couple of things. How many of you have ever found that, that there's a problem, and you solve it, and it goes away, but there are some situations in your life where it's a tension, you tend to it, and it comes back? This is called marriage. And if you've been only married for about five years, you probably didn't laugh. But <laughs> those of us who married longer, it's a, some things are a problem to be solved, tension to be managed. And this is a very important thing in life for you to sort out. A problem, if you can go and give two hours of it, of your time and focus and resource to it, and you solve it and it goes away forever, you have solved the problem. But if you go to something, and you try to work on it, and it keeps coming back again and again and again, it is a tension that you'll have to manage forever, a pull and a sway. Maybe you negotiate with the person or the situation that's there that to just walk away from the tug of war. Maybe it's just something that you have to learn not to yank back on, but that you know there's certain times where you just need to give some slack. But that's what this writer does, Is HE SAYS, LET'S LOOK AT WHAT THE TEACHER SAYS, BUT THE THING IS, IS THE TEACHER DOESN'T SAY EVERYTHING PERFECT IN HERE. IN FACT, I I LEFT IT IN HERE FOR YOUR NOTES, AND YOU CAN LOOK AT IT, BUT THERE ARE SOME MOMENTS WHERE THE TEACHER SAYS THINGS THAT SEEM TO BE IN CONFLICT, WHAT SCRIPTURE SAYS IN OTHER PLACES. SO HE'S NOT A PERFECT TEACHER. You see i don't want you to come to the book of ecclesiastes and just say hook line and sinker he's got everything lined up and we are just supposed to drink the kool-aid of the great teacher that, but he has some good things to say that provoke you to think but sometimes the book of ecclesiastes is provoking you to think so that you'll come out with an outcome that's different from what the teacher thinks do you see what i'm saying It's a tension within the book. And there are even conflicts within the book itself, and all of it's in there for your reading, and you can do that on your own if you want. I don't want to take time from preaching this, but it's important for us to understand what we're about to handle when we pick up the book of Ecclesiastes. It's not a perfect book. In fact, it's a tension. You might not know this about me, but I love poetry. I absolutely enjoyed my favorite class in Bible college was actually American literature one of my favorite poets is uncle Walt Whitman we have a picture of him here interesting thing about Walt Whitman is, is that he was alive during the Civil War but he was too old to serve and he was a pacifist so he served as a nurse and basically nurses assisted in the amputation of hundreds of thousands of limbs by the time World War II was over, million plus lives were gone, an entire nation of people were walking around without knees, legs, arms. He saw all of that. He saw that that was a moment in our history in this country for those of you from elsewhere where the idea of America almost ceased to exist. And after he came back 10 years after the Civil War, he sat down and he wrote his own book of Ecclesiastes, and he said it like this, O me, O life, of the question of the reoccurring, of the endless trains of the faithless, the cities filled with the foolish, of myself forever reproaching myself, from whom more foolish than I, and who more faithless than me? The eyes that vainly crave light, the objects of men, of the struggle ever renewed, of the poor results of all, of the plotting of the sordid crowds I see around me, of the empty and useless years of the rest, with the rest of me intertwined the question, O me, so sad reoccurring, what good amid these, O me, O life? HE WAS SITTING IN NEW YORK CITY, BECAUSE THAT'S WHERE HE WAS FROM AND WHERE HE RETURNED TO, AND HE WAS REFLECTING BACK ON ALL OF THE LIMBS THAT HE REMOVED, ALL OF THE LIVES THAT HE SAW LOST, ALL OF THE WASTE AND THE DEATH, ALL OF THE HOPES AND DREAMS THAT WERE SHATTERED. AND HERE HE IS A DECADE LATER LOOKING OUT AND SAYING, WHAT IN THE WORLD IS THE MEANING OF LIFE? Oh, me, oh, life, and he individualizes it. In fact, he would be, uh, to be philosophical, Pastor Dylan, he would have been semi-existentialist. He was focused on... Existence. Every single one of us, to some extent, is an existentialist. We believe, I exist. What is my life? What are my choices? What am I called to do? What are my opportunities? I want the best for my life. I mean, that's a, that in some ways is what an existentialist is. And when it's out of control, it becomes hedonism. I deserve the best. I should avoid pain and embrace pleasure. If it hurts, it's no good. If it helps, it is. And he looks out at everything, trains of people, crowds and masses just walking around with a glaze limping around. He goes, oh me, oh life and then he ends it and he flips it and he says, you know what? The answer is this that you are here, that life exists and identity that the powerful play goes on and that you may contribute a verse. You see, to simplify what he's saying is is that your life Everybody has a mom that loves him. Everybody has a dad that loves her. And as significant as you think your life is, it is a little, tiny dash between the number that you had given your first breath and to the moment that you'll take your last. It's a tiny dash. And at most, at most in history, you might contribute maybe a verse. I think in one sense we overrate how important we are. I think in one sense we overrate how right we are. In some senses, we overrate how large and significant and influential we are, because if you look at it against the backdrop of eternity, and you look at it against the backdrop of all of the hurt and the evil and all of the wrong and every missed opportunity, sometimes you can find yourself, like the writer of Ecclesiastes, that says to yourself, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. HOW MANY OF YOU HAVE EVER BEEN IN A LOW MOMENT OF YOUR LIFE? A DEPRESSED MOMENT WHERE YOU THOUGHT ALL HOPE WAS GONE. he would NEVER BE DIFFERENT. SHE'LL NEVER CHANGE. MY LIFE WILL ALWAYS BE SET ASIDE TO THIS LOT. AND THAT COULDN'T BE FURTHER FROM THE TRUTH. BUT THE TEACHER HERE IN ECCLESIASTES, HE WRITES IT OUT AND HE SAYS THIS, IF YOU COULD CLICK TO THE VERSE. He says, Some, uh, actually, if you could do me a favor, I'm sorry for doing this to you. If you could skip forward three, maybe four. Yeah, there it is. Thank you. Never mind. Flavia, I submit. Thank you. <laughs> She's always right, Joe, isn't she? <laughs> Listen to what the teacher's saying. Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. In fact, that word meaningless is used 37 times in the book. There are a couple of phrases, meaningless, meaningless, chasing after the wind, nothing new under the sun. And he really gives a, an accurate account of life. Like, it is not as long as you think. It is not as significant as you think. It is not as big as you think. And, and, and as he begins to look at it, he's like, man, this is, this is just vanity. But here's the problem. When I say the word vanity or meaningless in English, you say to yourself, it has no point. It has no purpose. It's a waste of time. And I'd propose to you that every single translation that uses meaningless, vanity, worthless, are all wrong. Anybody ever get uh, sick, COVID? And then your mom used to take that Vicks rub and rub it in your chest, and kind of go up. This is old school. We're going back to when real medicine happened. And then they would boil some water in a teapot, and up out of the tea, would, out of the pot, would rise a vapor, and that that vapor would go into your nose, and all of a sudden you'd start breathing again. I'm like thanks, mom. Here's some chicken soup. You know. The right translation for this word is not meaningless, worthless, or vanity. The Hebrew word for this is actually a vapor, a fog, a smoke. You can see it, but you can't grab it. By the time you identify it, it's changed and it's gone. He's saying, short, short is life. In fact, so short that it's not, like, it's not like short in height, and it's not short in distance, and it's not short in time, it's, it's not even measurable, it's like a, vape, a flame of vapor going off of a boiling pot just as soon as you see it, it's gone. If I were to take you and be able to pull you back across time and show you the beginning, as God did with Job when He lectured him and said, "Where were you when I created the heavens? Where were you when I made the stars? How, who do you think you are to question the wisdom of God? Why do you darken my counsel with your words? If I could pull you all the way back to the beginning where God said, "Let there be light." However it is, I don 't know. Scientists have been trying to figure it out for a, a very long time, but really technically, it has only been a meaningless little vapor of time. We brag about how much we know about the universe, we have yet to get somebody beyond the moon. It is amazing to me how arrogant and how forward we are in our thinking that we understand something. It's absolutely insane. If you were to be able to rush across history of humanity through the Old Testament to see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the Exodus, to be able to go through the kings, David and Josiah, to be able to see the the captivities, to be able to grow across the world and watch history happen through the Middle Ages and all of these things, eternity would just have been beginning. It's a dash. Your life is a dash between the date of your birth and the date of your death. And the most that you might be able to contribute to life is a verse on the stage. And I can identify with I can identify with this individual. In fact, you know what's amazing? In Genesis 4-2, we read this. It says, later, she, meaning Eve, gave birth to Abel. There's uh, two pictures. I want to show you right here real quick. First one is a picture of Cain and Abel offering their offerings. It's from a famous painting in Ghent in, in Denmark. It's not important, but it's the Hebrew word, Hevel. And guess what that word is used for? It's used for Ecclesiastes. Meaningless, meaningless. Hevel, hevel. We make a lot of mistakes when we translate from Hebrew to English. First of all, the, you can, uh, that, the middle letter there can actually sound like a V or a B. We say Abraham, where actually it's Avraham. And we say, Abel, where actually his name is Hevel. And the irony of his name. No sooner does a man who's righteous, who's right with God, is doing what God has called him to, to do, he's obeying God, he's offering up thanks to God, saying, Lord, here is is the first fruit of my flock, I honor you, all that I have is yours, all that I receive is a blessing from you, and he does it, and his brother in anger is jealous because of the relationship and the blessing and the favor of God that Abel has on his life, and lack of it that Cain has, God says to him, Cain, sin is crouching at your door, it desires to have you, if you would not do what is right, would I not bless you, and he speaks caution to him, but he doesn't listen and so what does he do? He goes out and he murders his brother and he takes his life and the very name of Hevel of Abel is a metaphor and a picture of just how brief our life is and there's a sense of tragedy to it Abel what a shame he had so much promise he had so much going for him i have in my heart a list that i carry around of friends who i knew who had more potential than me who ruined their lives i have in my head a list of friends who had so much potential who LOST THEIR LIVES. BUT the, the, different, the, the, THE DIFFERENCE HERE WITH THOSE WHO DIED AND THOSE WHO LIVED WAS NOT THE LENGTH OF TIME THAT THEY LIVED, BUT THE WAY THAT THEY CHOSE TO LIVE. YOU SEE, THE BOOK OF ECCLESIASTES IS NOT ABOUT HOW SHORT YOUR LIFE IS OR HOW MEANINGLESS LIFE IS. IT'S ABOUT HOW YOU WILL ALLOW MEANING TO COME INTO YOUR LIFE BY LIVING FOR JESUS CHRIST. psalm 90 verse 12 reads like this teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom you know who wrote that moses that's the psalm of moses i'm at a point in my life where it used to be that i look at pastor dylan and i'm like he's 30 he's young you know but he's going into his his dirty 30s they better not be dirty <laughs> but he had his roaring twenties, his thirties, the forties, and then you enter your fifties. And you're in your thirties and your forties, you're not old based on who you decide to compare yourself to. But you reach a point in the life, and my father in law said where it's not that you don't know what's going on, it's whether or not you like it. And that's what your fifties are. You're not stupid you know the thoughts and intentions behind a lot of motives without them being spoken and you're like eh, that's not cool i don't like that but and that's why it's so important for us as believers to live upright but your life is so brief it's it's hevel hevel all this life is hevel it's it's a vapor it's gone so fast there's an old story that talks about the butterfly on the oak tree, and when it was a caterpillar, it crawled all over it, and the oak would talk to it often, and then he went into his cocoon, and he came out, and he was a butterfly, and he began to fly through the whole valley, and he came back, and he's frustrated, and he says to the oak, he's like, I'm just so frustrated, and he's like, what, what do you mean? He says, I'm bored, and he's like, what do you mean you're bored? He, he goes, uh, nothing nothing ever changes and the oak says to him i've been here for centuries it's everything's changed you know it really just depends on your perspective and then sometimes it really just depends on what perspective you decide to choose depending on who you're talking to this is why i think we need to kiss life kiss life keep it simple Student. I, I guess I keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> at the end of the book, this person that's trying to get you to look at the the author of Ecclesiastes and examine his teachings, and we'll do that. We'll go through the book. He says this. He says, "Be warned, my son. The making of many books there is no end, and much study wearies the flesh or wearies the body." You see, there's another side to life. (laughs) This usually happens in your 20s and your 30s. This happens in college and life. This happens in the school of hard knocks, street smarts, or in the Ivy League. But it happens all over the place, where you just begin to learn and learn and learn and learn and try and find significance and understand. And then you 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 try to understand economy, and then you try to understand you know all kinds of things and markets and and then, and then you try to understand people and then you try to understand people and then you try to understand people and then you go on to cars and you want to fix your car and you learn and, and then all of a sudden you realize that there is no end. Just when you know it was amazing. Just the other day I was looking at a situation and I was evaluating it and I remember evaluating it when I was 25 and I'm looking at it now when I'm in in my early 50s and I'm sitting there and I'm saying oh my goodness, I totally see things that I never saw back then. You see, you can go on and 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 on with life, and there's a part of this that the teacher is trying to say, is this, hey, listen, there comes a point where you just need to know enough. Life's too short. We've gone through a whole generation of people that thought that if they got a degree, they secured a job. And really, at the end of the day, it also had to do with your capacity, your mental, fle- and your and your your relational flexibility. It has to do with your aptitudes. It's not just enough to go to school. There are some people, I remember, um, well, I want, I want to talk about a personal thing, but they, they're just, sometimes there are people you can line them up, and three-fourths of them, it's like. Yeah, but they've got all of these things that even though they have that knowledge, they haven't learned what it is to work with people. To what, what, they haven't learned what it is to be flexible. They haven't learned... The thing that I love about the people in this church, us as a community, is that when service is over and we're like, oh man, you know what, we need to set up something, it's like, you, we kick into action, don't we? Like, we, this place serves like nobody's business. And this place is filled with some very smart people. AND I'M NOT JUST TALKING ABOUT EDUCATED SMARTS. THERE'S EDUCATED SAM WHO'S BACK HERE. GOOD TO SEE YOU, MY MAN. AND who's wor- WHO JUST CAME BACK FROM GREECE AND IS WORKING ON HIS PH.D. AND uh, WE'VE GOT Dr. DR. DAVE, THERE HE IS, AND WE'VE GOT ANOTHER DR. DAVE, AND WE'VE GOT ALL THOSE KIND OF THINGS. BUT GUESS WHAT, WE'VE GOT SOME MOMS THAT KNOW WHAT IT'S LIKE TO MANAGE SEVEN KIDS AT THE SAME TIME. TRY AND DO THAT WITH A PH.D. GOOD LUCK. <laughs> We've got people who are highly educated in compassion and empathy who can draw a tear for you when you've lost the ability to do it for yourself. But sometimes you can go on and on and on, and there comes a point where you got to say, enough. Uh, There's an author, his name was uh, Malcolm Gladwell, and he said this, the, the statistical analysis as we call it that if you give 10,000 hours to something with research and practice, and you get yourself into the right sources, you will become an expert in that area. Somebody got a calculator, or see if you could do this math in your head. 10,000 hours divided by 40 hour week. How many weeks? Or we'll round it up to years. If you're gonna say it, you better use your outside voice. 250 weeks is how many years? There are 56 weeks in a year? And this is why your math teacher was mad at you. (laughs) (laughs) How many years? 4.8 years. You want to become a master at something. You're going to have to give... 40 hour you're going to have to give the equivalent of a job 40 hours a week for 4. <laughs> that's a PhD. <laughs> my wife goes, that's a PhD. In the United States it is. Go to go get one in it overseas and then... It's crazy. Here's another problem with life getting meaningless is that you have what's called the Law of Diminishing Returns. It's a fancy principle, but I'll make it really simple. I may be able to work a 40-hour week and get an $800 paycheck, right? But in order for me to do the work that my ba- that the re- and get the same results, to bring it up to $1,000, I'd have to do an entire extra week of work. That doesn't sound like I made it simpler. Law of diminishing, let me read it how it is. It's a principle stating the benefits gained from something will have smaller gains as more time, effort, and resources are invested in it. In other words, there comes a point where when you put more time and effort into something, it no longer becomes beneficial. It's amazing how... WE THROW OURSELVES INTO ALL KINDS OF THINGS WITH OUR LIFE AND WE THINK, THIS IS GOING TO BE GREAT, AND IT SEEMS LIKE WE GET TO THAT MOMENT, AND THEN JUST AS SOON AS WE GET TO THAT MOMENT, WE SPEND SO MUCH MORE OF OUR LIFE JUST TRYING TO MAKE IT PERFECT, AND THIS IS THE DISEASE OF A PERFECTIONIST BECAUSE YOU'LL waste SO MUCH OF YOUR LIFE FOR SOMETHING WHERE YOU JUST NEED TO SAY, GOOD ENOUGH IS THE ENEMY OF THE BEST. BUT SOMETIMES THE BEST IS THE ENEMY OF GOOD ENOUGH. You see, we're called to live our lives, not perfect our lives. And the truth is this, there's nothing new under the sun. In other words, what, what it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. That phrase is used over and over again, all over the place. Uh, how many of you uh, have heard of Woolworth? There was somebody that put on a, on a, uh, on Facebook, I think it was, they, or or it might have been, it might have been Twitter, but they put it on Facebook, they said, date yourself by naming a store that you used to go to that no longer exists, right? Some people are like Ames, Barkers, Bradleys, (laughs) Bradleys, right? Before there was Walmart, there was Woolworth. Woolworth sat on the corner of Haverhill. If you go over the bridge to the left, it was there when my wife and I moved up in 2008. Uh, It was not; it wasn't operating. But this is the original Woolworth building. It began right in Haverhill, Mass. And he started these five-and-dime stores, the, the equivalent of Walmart, all over the country. And in fact. You're nobody until you make it in New York. And so they built what was called the Woolworth Building, right in New York City. And a lot of people don't know this, but from the beginning of the 1900s all the way in through and past World War I, it was the largest building in New York City. You built it on all your dimes and nickels. The, the, the five and dime stores, they called them. And then all of a sudden, another guy started a business, and it was doing good. It was Chrysler and he started his company and he decided I'll build my building and so they were in competition and they hid there was another building that was going up at the same time and they hid it for the last minute because as they were both coming to an end they had the plan that they would put an antenna on the top so that it would supersede the other building that they were competing with and then all of a sudden the Chrysler building became the biggest building and uh, how many of you drive a Chrysler? I see that hand, I see that hand. And we could say this about the Empire State Building. We could say this with frustration and anger, the World Trade Center, and then we could say this about the One World Tower, or the towers in Lumpur. and all through history men are building their kingdoms, they're establishing things. They come and they go and, and, as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, that, 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 that those that come after us will have no memory of us. <coughs> How much do you really know about your great-grandfather? That entire generation is gone. The world that they lived in is gone the phrases that they use that make no sense to you, that made sense to them, the meaning of it is gone. The, the corporate tensions are gone. Life is hevel. It is vapor. It is so fast, and there is nothing new under the sun. And you might say, yeah, well, what about, like, splitting the atom? And what about, um, you know, this, that, and the other thing? You know what? in, in oftentimes, it's, it's changed. It comes in different. My mom's calling me. I'm like, who is calling me? It's my wife saying, hurry up, finish. (laughs) Look at this next slide real quick. Let me put this in your, uh, that's actually where it is now. You can take uh, NECO classes there, but next slide, sorry. Think about this. What was before will be the same. I'll give you an example. Nothing new under the sun. Immortality. All throughout human history, we have been trying to live forever. So what happens? The Egyptians mummify you and bury you with your stuff, OR YOU CAN BE CONVENIENTLY CRYOGENICALLY FROZEN AFTER YOUR DEATH TO BE RAISED, RESURRECTED, AND REBOOTED SO THAT BY THE TIME THEY FIND CURES FOR YOUR DISEASE THAT THEY'LL BE THERE. LISTEN, THEY'RE GOING TO SEE THE SAME THING THAT WE SEE THAT GOD SAID ALL ALONG. IT IS APPOINTED ONCE TO MAN TO DIE AND THEN THE JUDGMENT. TO BE ABSENT FROM THE BODY IS PRESENT WITH THE LORD. There's nothing new under the sun. Life is heavy. It's fleeting. It's fast. It's quick. No sooner do you get it, does it change. You can jump over that next slide and just jump. I was going to give you a speech from the movie The King. You need to watch it if you haven't seen it on Netflix. It's a rework of Shakespeare, but I'm not going to do it. It's pretty good. You can jump past that one. So the teacher closes off with his crowning lesson. And this is really the... This is not the teacher who we're going to examine his words and his contradictions, and we're going to put him to the test to see how good his education really is. But this is, at the beginning and the end, this is once again that, that framer talking about the teacher. And he comes back and he makes the statement, and he says this, Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Why? For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Every hidden thing. That terrifies me. Imagine if you had the ability to take the deepest, darkest thoughts and deeds of my life and put them up on the screen. Imagine if I had the ability to do that for you. Boy, this would be the holiest church. (laughs) We're so careless. We're so temporal. We don't really give thought that your life, every breath you draw, is brief and is a gift from God, and that your life is not just simply for you to chart the course, to forge your destiny. Your life, and the teacher will talk about this, that God puts man and and He gives us opportunity to live for Him. You see, he knew where you would be. In fact, it says in in Acts chapter 20 that the Lord chose both the appointed time and places for all mankind. I just happen to be dumb enough to believe that. That God knew when I would be born, where I would be born, what time I would be born. You always hear people that say, I was born in the wrong century, you know? And and, no, you weren't born in the wrong century. You were born in the right century. In fact, uh, there's a verse that says this that David fulfilled the purpose of his life and then he fell to sleep. In, In other words, he died. Like God put David in his time, in his place, because there was a purpose that he was inviting David to rise up and into. a a contribution that David would make. Some people will make large contributions that may go further across the centuries and be known by more people. It'll be more prolific. Other people will do small, insignificant things that nobody will be looking at and nobody will see but that God would say, if that one person didn't do that one thing in that one moment in that one person's life, they would not be in eternity with me. BUT THINK ABOUT THIS, HE SAYS, FEAR GOD, OBEY HIS COMMANDMENTS. WHAT'S HIS COMMANDMENT? He, JESUS SUMMED IT UP AND SIMPLIFIED IT. HE SAID, LOVE THE LORD AND LOVE YOUR NEIGHBOR. WHAT DOES THAT REALLY LOOK LIKE? I'LL TELL YOU WHAT IT DOESN'T LOOK LIKE. IT DOESN'T LOOK LIKE WHAT WAS GOING THROUGH MY MIND THE OTHER, the other WEEK WHEN I WAS TRYING TO HELP MY MOM WITH SOMETHING AND uh, MY family was moving in and there was stuff that had to be done and i'm like exhausted and i'm like i, di- I just can't do it i don't want to and like oh, they should be doing it and you know all that stuff that goes through your head like that's not loving somebody you know what in order to really do what jesus said love your neighbor as yourself you actually need to think more highly of others than you think of yourself the real problem of the sin of not loving somebody as yourself is that you put yourself over them you think that their needs are pettier you think that they're Quests ARE NOT SIGNIFICANT, THAT THEY DON'T DESERVE YOUR TIME, THAT THEY DON'T DESERVE YOUR SACRIFICE, THAT THEY DON'T DESERVE YOUR CARE, THAT THEY DON'T DESERVE YOUR CONTRIBUTION, THAT THEY DON'T DESERVE YOUR PATIENCE. AND WE LOOK AT PEOPLE AND WE JUDGE THEM AND WE SAY, THAT'S JUST STUPID, THEY'RE GONNA HAVE TO FIGURE THAT OUT OR WHATEVER. AND THE WHOLE TIME GOD'S SAYING, NO, THIS IS WHY YOU'RE HERE. YOU'RE TO BE A BLESSING. YOU'RE TO HELP PEOPLE. YOU SHOULDN'T LOOK AT OTHER PEOPLE. High. HE SAYS THIS, HE SAYS, Don't, DON'T THINK OF YOURSELF MORE HIGHLY THAN YOU OUGHT TO. BUT BE WILLING TO ASSOCIATE WITH PEOPLE IN LOWLY POSITION BECAUSE THE TRUTH OF THE matter IS, THE LOWER YOU GO IN THIS EARTH, THE HIGHER YOU GO IN ETERNITY. THE MORE LOWER YOU CAN BOW DOWN TO SERVE SOMEBODY, THE MORE POWERFUL AND STRONG YOU ARE TO FACE THE CIRCUMSTANCES THAT OTHER PEOPLE CAN'T FACE. GOD'S PUT YOU HERE WITH A PURPOSE. As brief as your life is, as vaporous as it is, and the problem is, is that we put our eyes on ourselves. We serve ourselves. We create our goals. We build our visions. Some of you, I love you. I'm not judging you because I really don't know you close enough to do this. Only God does. But I've seen people. Their family is their God. They're little family units. They're God. Instead of teaching their children and saying as a family, we're going to do this together or we're going to serve God together. And then our kids grow up and we wonder why they're self-centered and why they won't do anything for others. They need to see that in us. 2 Corinthians 5, 10, and 11 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or evil. That sounds very familiar. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Chapter 12, verses 13 and 14 in Ecclesiastes. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, Whether it is good or evil. So, not only the things that we do, but the things that we did, that we thought, that we said, that nobody saw. When I think of that, I tremble. I'm so flippant. I'm so arrogant. I'm so inflated in my significance. I'm so self-centered that I create lie, a life of lies that I insulate my life so that I can do with it what I want, the way I want, when I want, how I want, and I'm just walking around in a big pile of dog dew. And everybody smells it. It's like the king's, the king's uh, new wardrobe where he goes out and he's dressed and everybody's afraid to tell him the truth that he's naked, but... but he just wants a self-sustaining delusion. Is your life a self-sustaining delusion? Have you insulated your life so much that you're really walking around unclothed in Christ, unwilling to be and do what the purpose of your life is, to serve Him, to love Him, to be f- His, and to be willing to do what He did? The Bible says that, that the Lord, David wrote it in the Psalms, the Lord stooped down to make me great if we took our eyes off of our goals and our attentions and our bank accounts and our resumes and, our, and we began to put them on the needs around us on the people around us on the circumstances around us the world would be a merrier place in fact the will of God isn't really that difficult you see a need around you and you can meet that need that's the will of God for you today Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15 reads like this. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence. and There was no place for them. Then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. There was a book that was written. My cousin, uh, Actually lives in this section, or did, where the, the book F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby took place. It's really a picture of the flippancy of a self-consumed world. They called them the, the Roaring Twenties for a reason. In the 1920s, it was some of the most broad prosperity America had ever seen. My grandfather had just landed in this country. He started a business in New York City called Manhattan Bar and Grill, and he. It everybody was just exploding with opportunity. Boxing and sports and all, the stock market, it was just out of control. It was like everybody was becoming a millionaire. And in the story of this, If you've never seen it, there's a book, I encourage you to read it, or you could just simply watch the movie. The one done by Leonardo DiCaprio is a pretty good version of it. But at the end of it, this one man is in pursuit of this woman. He never gets the girl. He ends up getting framed for another guy. He tells this guy he's cheating on his wife. This man just comes up and just basically shoots Gatsby, murders him, because this other man said that, that he was cheating, he was was sleeping with the guy's wife. And he just was framed, and he was murdered. And the couple just take off, and he writes this about the couple. He says, they were careless people, Tom and Daisy. They smashed up things and creatures and then retreated back into their money and their vast carelessness, or whatever it was that kept them together, and let other people clean up the mess they had made. I feel like we're in the same kind of similar culture, but there's, we're not necessarily in the roaring 20s. We've, we've got, we're headed towards the crashes of the 30s. But as Americans, we are the wealthiest, we are in the top 6% of wealth. If you're here today and you're complaining about your situation and you've had a meal and you have a, a carpet or a wood floor on, on your floor in your house, you are better off than 90 some percent of people in the world. We're, but we're also accountable for that. And I think sometimes we just go through life and we're so obsessed with ourselves that we forget that Jesus took all of the tension off of himself and made it about us. And actually, the call of being a follower of Christ, of being a Christian, is not showing up to church on Sunday. It is a call to let God speak to you through His Word on a regular basis, because how can anybody have influence in your life if they never talk to you? If you're here and you are part of this church, I want you to know this isn't like an expectation of the pastor, but like, how can, how can God have any influence in your life if you're not letting Him speak to you, if you're not reading His Word? how can he correct you how can he encourage you how can he direct you his book is is the word of life granted you know sometimes it's rough i'm in book of ezekiel i've been reading through ezekiel he's, he's pretty freaky but i don't understand everything all the time and i've got i've got more degrees than a the thermometer if I, if I should take a joke with me one time and said that you got more degrees than a thermometer and i still don't understand everything but i'm in it i'm in his word I need him to speak to me. Because we live in a careless culture, with careless people in a culture that is so self-absorbed to say, embrace pleasure, avoid pain. Embrace insulating your life, avoid being challenged. And if you read that book, it will challenge you to your core. those verses that we read may be the only time that you ever hear them but they will become a reality where you and i will stand before the judgment seat of christ we will be rewarded for what we've done but we will also god will ask us to give an account what did you do with the opportunity of your life what did you do with what you learned what did you do with the with the time that you had on your hands what did you do with the people around you? Did you look down on them? Did you even look at them? Or did you, did you get under them and lift them up like I did to, to, to stoop down to make them great? There's two quotes, and I'll ask the worship team to come back. I'm closing, it. I'm over here, I'm done. What is the gospel? It's certainly not meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. We've got to frame life properly just as somebody had to frame the teacher in the book of ecclesiastes properly in the first and last chapter we have got to frame it and look at it just because something comes out of someone's mouth or out of the book doesn't mean that it's perfect look at job's friends the majority of that book is filled with job's friends trying to give him counsel and it was all corrected by god it was good stuff just terrible timing Our life is here for a purpose. But if you have never surrendered your life, or you have taken back the lordship of your life, if you have insulated your life so that nobody can speak correction into it, that nobody can speak uh, direction into it, if you've insulated your life, you have taken back the lordship of Jesus Christ from your life. You may have given it to him, but you've taken it back. THERE WAS A TIME WHERE SOME OF YOU IN THIS ROOM WOULD HAVE GONE ANYWHERE AND DONE ANYTHING FOR JESUS, AND NOW YOUR FAMILY CAN HARDLY GET YOU TO DO WHAT THEY NEED YOU TO DO. YOU'VE TAKEN BACK THE LORDSHIP OF JESUS CHRIST. MAYBE YOU'RE HERE AND YOU HAVE JUST GOT THAT SLAP AND TOOK YOUR FIRST BREATH AND NOBODY EVER TOLD YOU ABOUT WHAT IS THE GOSPEL, WHAT IS, what is IT TO BE A CHRISTIAN, WHAT IS IT, what is it TO BE SAVED I love a leader that, his name's Dick Brogdon, he's in charge of a thing called Live Dead Movement. In fact, some of our friends, Anthony Von Area and many others on that back wall, they, they go into places where it's illegal to bring the gospel. They have given up on their country, their culture, their language, and they go around the world. And he said, the gospel is really simple. It's seven words. He says, I'll give it to you in, in three, in five, and then in seven words. He says, God saves us. God saves us. Listen, there is nobody righteous enough, there is nobody holy enough that could say that they could stand before God and that they're good enough. In fact, the gospel of saying I'm a good person will get you to hell faster than any other gospel. It's better that you say I'm a vile person than to say that I'm a good person because you, you begin to say I can earn my way to heaven. Nobody can earn their way to heaven. God has to save you. God saves us. Who does he save us from? He saves us from him and his wrath, his righteousness. God is love, but he is also holy. He never gives up his justice for his love, and he never gives up his love for his justice. They are inseparable. For you to say to God, don't judge that, is about... AS MUCH AS HARD AS IT IS TO SAY TO JESUS, DON'T LOVE ME, IT'S IMPOSSIBLE. SO WHAT DOES GOD DO? HE HAS ATTENTION. HE'S LOOKING AT YOU AND ME, AND HE SAYS, I WANT TO BRING THEM INTO THIS WORLD, AND I WANT THEM FOR ALL ETERNITY, BUT THEIR LIFE HERE IS A VAPOR, AND IT'S DANGEROUS, AND IT'S BRIEF, AND MAN IS SELFISH, AND THIS WORLD IS CORRUPTED, AND THEY'LL BE DECEIVED BY IT. I WANT THEM TO BE WITH ME FOR ALL ETERNITY, BECAUSE LIFE IS heaven, heaven absolutely heaven what can i do i can't let sin go unjudged so i'll send my son and he will die for them and if they're willing to allow to humble themselves to come down low and say oh god i'm not a good person you're a good god then i can save them from me and from themselves YOU SEE, GOD SAVES US, BUT GOD SAVES US FROM OURSELVES BECAUSE OF OUR DESTRUCTIVE NATURE, OUR selfish NATURE. AND DON'T FOOL YOURSELF. YOU CAN LOOK AT SOMEBODY WHO'S DOING HEROIN AND CRACK, AND MY FRIEND, THAT WILL RUIN YOUR LIFE ABOUT AS EQUALLY AS BITTERNESS, UNFORGIVENESS, AND SLOTHFULNESS, AN UNWILLINGNESS TO DO. SOME OF YOU NO LONGER DO THE THINGS THAT YOU USED TO DO FOR GOD. Jesus said it like this. He came to the church and he says, I have one thing against you. You have lost, you have forsaken your first love. There was a time where you loved me, where you wept for me, where you came to the altar and you said, God, cleanse me, use me, fill me. When was the last time that happened in your life when you surrendered to God? THIS ISN'T JUST ABOUT JUST JESUS SAY THE PRAYER AND COME TO CHURCH EVERY DAY AND BE A GOOD PERSON AND THEN MEET GOD. NO. GOD WANTS TO TALK TO YOU. HE WANTS TO USE YOU. HE WANTS YOU TO PROTECT. HE WANTS YOU TO DEFEND. HE WANTS YOU TO INTERVENE. HE WANTS YOU TO COMFORT. HE WANTS YOU TO CARE. HE WANTS YOU TO MAKE A DIFFERENCE IN THIS LIFE BECAUSE IT IS NOT hevel hevel. EVERYTHING IS hevel. IT'S ETERNAL, ETERNAL. EVERYTHING IS ETERNAL, AND THE GOD OF THIS WORLD IS TRYING TO DARKEN THE EYES OF PEOPLE OF THIS age. TO STEAL THIS WORLD OF WHAT BELONGS TO HIM. TIM KELLER SAID IT EVEN BETTER. HE SAID, THE GOSPEL IS THIS, WE'RE MORE SINFUL AND FLAWED IN OURSELVES THAN WE EVER DARED TO BELIEVE, YET, WE'RE MORE LOVED AND ACCEPTED IN JESUS THAN WE EVER DARE HOPE. MY FRIEND, YOU ARE MORE VILE AND EVIL THAN YOU EVER DARED IMAGINE. You've given yourself a pass for some things in your life, and it's time that you get it right with Jesus. But at the same time, this isn't about God shaming and driving you away. At the same time, you are also more loved than you ever dared or hoped. It's your move. It's your move as the worship team sings, Are you going to just drift through the vapor of your life? Are you going to just forget everything that God did in your life, everything He deposited in you, and just drift to the end here? Or will you recapture the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your life and let Him be Lord in, your, in you again? Will you do that? Here's how I suggest we do it I'm going to exit the stage. I might give you. COVID as I go by and breathe on you, Daniel. Sorry. No, I'm 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 good, but just for safety's sake, I'm gonna leave here. Your move. I leave it with you. See, and if you come up here and it's just a, oh Lord, I don't know. No, it's a it's an accounting, Lord. I've lost, I've forsaken my first love. I made promises to you, and I'm not keeping them. I made a dedication of my life to you, and I've shifted it. I've insulated my life. I've isolated my life. I've, I've pursued my desires and dreams instead of your purposes. Listen, God knows how to give you the desires of your heart. Somebody needs to hear this. God knows how to give you the desires of your hearts and he'll give them to you in his own creative timing and way if you're willing to give him ownership of your life and say, not my kingdom, your kingdom come, not my will, your will be done. Can we give ourselves afresh to Jesus here? Can we take some time and do that? I'd suggest it could be found here kneeling at the altar or kneeling out there. I leave you in the hands of Jesus. God bless you.
0: Thank you, Lord. Father, I pray that you would take our eyes, like Psalm 119 says, from looking at worthless things and incline our hearts to run in your commandments and not just walk. God, I pray that you'd fix our gaze on the things that matter. And that you would help us to turn our eyes upward to the hills from where our help comes from, to the Lord, to the maker of heaven and earth. I pray that you would transform us, God, to be like you. We thank you, God. We pray that you would change us. We commit ourselves freshly to you. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would meet that commitment. Your word says, Lord, if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us so, God, draw near to us, transform us, and help us to walk by faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you soon. Feel free to linger and pray. Thank you for joining us for today's service. If you missed any part of this sermon or you want to catch it again, you can do so by going to Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or Spotify. And I also encourage you to go to lolag.org or ne-cc.org if you want to stay up to date on everything we have going on. God bless, and we'll see you next week.